So for those of you that don't know me, my name's Michael. I'm a member here at Redeemer. If you don't know my name, you might better know me as Rosie and Violet's dad, or maybe you know me as Kirsten's husband, but nonetheless, my name is Michael, and it's an honor to bring the word to you this morning. Um, I've titled my sermon, Doubters Need Not Despair, and depending on your upbringing, your background, that may sound a bit strange to you, that doubters need not despair, because from your perspective, that to doubt means you are not believing. And if you're not believing, well, then you should feel right to despair. And so when you hear me say that doubters need not despair, that raises some questions in your heart. How can that be? How can faith and doubt coexist in a way that I don't need to despair? And in order to answer that question, I want to give a little context on my story. So I grew up here in Florence. I was baptized at an early age, professed faith. But like so many young people, I began to question my faith. I began to wonder if my faith was authentic, if it was true, if I believed the right things, if I believed hard enough. I, I wasn't sure. But also, like so many, I didn't want to tell anyone because, well, I thought that for me to doubt meant that I needed to despair. So I didn't want to make a big fuss about it. I just thought I could stuff it down, and maybe those doubts would go away. Maybe the questions would would vanish, and then I would again be confident in the Lord. That's not how things worked. Things began to get worse. The doubts began to stack on top of one another. By the time I was a freshman in college, I had all but abandoned my faith. But again, I didn't want to tell anyone that because, well, then that meant I needed to despair, so I kept it quiet. But in my heart, I had rejected the Lord. But that all changed in my freshman year of college, when in a moment, all the things that I had learned growing up in church, all the things that I had been taught, it all came together in a moment. In a moment, all the things that I had, over time, begun to reject made sense to me, and and I was compelled to say, yes, Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the creator God. He is the Lord of the universe. And not only that, I'm, I'm compelled to submit to him. I want to serve him because I now see who he is. I see that he is God. He is Lord. And I want to serve him. And so in that moment, I laid my life down before him and experienced great peace, great joy. Because of that, it didn't take long for me to get involved in ministry. I got plugged into several student ministries at my college. And that set me on a trajectory towards ministry. And so I finished college got married, and my wife and I, Kirsten and I, moved to Louisville, Kentucky to attend seminary. I wanted to know the word. I wanted to understand it. I wanted to have all the gaps in my knowledge that I still had. I wanted to have those gaps filled in because because I wanted to share with others about this Lord that had brought me peace and joy, that had eased my fears and brought me relief. And so I wanted to have those questions answered. But, as these things often go, it took several years, but that confidence began to waver again. And I began to wonder, piece by piece, whether or not my faith was true. I had doubts, I had questions. 
Some of them were theological as I was studying and spending a lot of time reading theologians of old and learning about doctrines. Some of them made more sense than others, and those would produce doubts in my heart. Some of them were existential. How do we know what's true? How do we, how do we arrive at what's true and what's false? How can we really know? But as a student receiving a Master's of Divinity, I didn't really want to tell anyone that someone who was soon to have mastered the divine was doubting. I can't let anyone know that. I can't let my church know that. I can't let my fellow students and professors know that because, well, that would be awful hypocritical, wouldn't it? But here again, those doubts just don't go away. They couple. They, they stacked on one another. Because to admit doubt meant that I needed to despair, which terrified me. Because I had come to believe that faith was a gift from God, right? That God gives it to us. What if, what if I hadn't received the gift? What if my faith wasn't true? What if it was not authentic? But eventually, I had no choice but to admit that I was struggling, that I had questions. I, I saw Jesus as Lord. I believed it. But there were so many questions that clouded my vision of exactly who he was. What did he want from me? What did, it, what did he require of me? There were so many questions that it made it difficult to pray. I, I wasn't sure how to approach him. Could I approach him? Would he reject me because of my doubts? So I just tried to change. I tried to erase them, tried to suppress them. Some of you have may be familiar with the old SNL Bob Newhart skit, which he plays a therapist. And he has, he has this client come to him, and she's telling him all of her problems. Like, I'm, I'm claustrophobic. I have these terrible nightmares. I have these fears. And then she goes on and on about all of these things that are wrong. And, and he's, I want, I want you to get out a pen and paper. I want you to write down two words. And these two words are going to solve all your problems. I think it's going to solve all your questions. And he says, just stop it. And that's how I felt, right? Just stop doubting. Why are you doubting? You've seen God work. You've seen him move. Why are you doubting? Just stop doing that. Why are you doing that, Michael? Just stop it. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've been there. You've had a season in your life where you kept telling yourself to just stop it. Just stop doubting. Don't do that. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've never been there. Maybe you've never experienced doubt in that way, in the way that I'm describing. But I would suggest to you that we've all experienced doubt. Does God love me? Is this particular sin a really big deal, or is it not such a big deal? Is God actually in control? Is he listening? Do I truly know God? Is what he has commanded really best for me? So you may not experience an existential crisis of sorts, like what I've described in myself, but you expose a measure of doubt every time you succumb to temptation. You doubt that what God has said is actually good. You doubt God. How can faith and doubt coexist? John Calvin, the great reformer, you may be surprised, I was surprised, to read, where he says, Surely, while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt. Any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. It's John Calvin. And if that's the case, I want to ask two big questions this morning. 
How does Jesus respond to our doubts? Number two, what steps should we take when we doubt? In order to answer these questions, I want to take a look at John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. But first, I want to define a few terms as I'm using them. When I say doubt, what I mean is a feeling of uncertainty regarding something that you once thought to be true. It's, it's an attitude of uncertainty. It's not outright rejection. It's not unbelief. Okay, doubts are when we say, my mind and soul tell me this is true, but my heart, it feels disconnected. There's a dissonance between the two. Okay, if that's what doubt is, what is faith? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity provides a helpful definition when he says, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Another author, an atheist turned Christian, John Wise says, faith is the willingness to move forward and take action in the face of uncertainty. Therefore, when I refer to a doubter, I'm referring to a person that has faith in Jesus, a Christian that has repented of sin, committed his or her life to the Lord, but that is now experiencing doubt, uncertainty of some form. And so with that, I want to read the text. But first, I want to give a little context about where we are in the book of John. So far, we've seen Jesus spend three years with 12 disciples. These 12 disciples have left everything behind to follow Jesus. They've, they've seen him teach. They've seen him perform miracles. They've seen him heal people. They've seen him raise a man from the dead. They deem him to be the Messiah. They deem him to be this great man of God. But the book of John does make clear that they had some gaps in their understanding. They didn't quite understand the extent to which Jesus was the Son of God. And they've witnessed Jesus crucified. They've witnessed him dead. They've seen his body laid in a tomb. And so they begin to ask themselves, is this really the real deal? What has happened? We've seen this man raise others from the dead. How can it be that I've seen him now crucified and dead? But Peter and John, two other of the disciples, have seen Jesus' empty tomb. They've seen it for themselves. They go to the tomb to see Jesus' body. It's not there. Well, then they receive word that Mary Magdalene, another follower of Christ, has seen the Lord. She says that he is raised from the dead. And so that's where we find ourselves. I want to pick up in verse 19 of John chapter 20. It reads, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Let's skip to verse 24, our text for the day. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
May God bless the reading of his word. So I want to ask the first question. How does Jesus respond to our doubts? How does Jesus respond to Thomas's doubts? First thing I notice when I read this is that Jesus extends compassion. When you look at verses 19 through 21, Jesus had already appeared to the other ten disciples, but Thomas wasn't with them. The disciples were glad and believed, but where was Thomas? He'd been with these men for three years. He spent virtually all of his time with them, but yet here are ten of the remaining eleven disciples, and Thomas isn't with them. Maybe he was out for coffee or taking a nap, but I think that it's more likely that he was staying away for fear of the Jews. He, it seems that they were all afraid. They had the door locked. For good reason, they had just seen Jesus crucified. They were a bit nervous that they might be next. It seems like Thomas was intentionally not spending time with the other disciples. Because we know that those ten disciples, when they did see the Lord, they were glad. They believed. They, they saw the risen Lord. They had seen that he had risen from the dead, and they believed and were glad. And so they go to Thomas, and they say, we've seen the Lord, but Thomas, Thomas isn't sure. He confesses that he would not be able to believe unless he were able to touch Jesus' body see the wounds with his own two eyes, he would not be able to believe. But there he sat with the other disciples eight days later. He wasn't there before, now he is. Leads me to believe that Thomas wanted to believe. He wanted to believe that the resurrection was true. He wanted to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Maybe that's you. Maybe you have had a season in the past where you were confident, where you had placed your faith in the Lord, where for three years you followed him, you were with him, you saw him work, but now you find yourself unsure. Something in your life, something in your mind, something you've experienced has shifted and now you find yourself doubting. Maybe that's you. But now you feel far off. I think this brings good news to us that Jesus extends compassion to us. He did to Thomas. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus seeks him out. He approaches him. He draws near to him. The first words he speaks when he arrives are, peace be with you. He's not like us, is he? We would expect him to come and slap Thomas in the face and say, what's wrong with you? Have you not seen me? Have you not seen what I've done, what I'm capable of, who I am? He's not like us because we get angry, don't we? When people don't believe us, when someone doesn't trust us, when we tell them that something is true and they reject it, it makes us angry. That's not Jesus. Jesus is compassionate. He draws near to Thomas. Touch my side. Touch my hands, Thomas. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Second thing I think we see in regards to how Jesus treats us when we doubt is that he invites consideration. The disciples who had seen the Lord experienced his compassion already, and they invited Thomas to gather in with them. And for eight days, they are together. And I can imagine the distress that Thomas must have felt. He's surrounded by people who were glad to see the Lord, who were rejoicing that the Lord had risen from the grave. They were hopeful. They were eager. I want to make note of something. Thomas doesn't seem to be rejecting Jesus here. Because rejection looks like, I see who you are, I've seen 
your mercy, much like the religious leaders. I've, I've seen the mercy that you show, and I reject you. I don't want anything to do with you. That's what rejection says. Thomas seems more to be saying that I want to be with Jesus. I remember fondly the years that I spent with him. I, I grieve his death. I want to be with him. I want it to be true. I want to believe. So he's there with the disciples. At great risk to himself, mind you. The doors are still locked, John is clear to note. I can imagine Thomas saying, maybe Jesus will appear again. Maybe, maybe then I can know for sure. Jesus lets him sit in those feelings for eight days. He lets Thomas consider what he believes. But we see that change, don't we? We see it change when the Lord appears to him. It doesn't even seem like he goes through with actually touching his hands inside. The way the text reads, it seems like Jesus appears and, and Thomas is ready. He's eager. He wants to believe. And when he sees the Lord appear in the room with him, calling peace to you, he believes. All the, all the things he had heard Jesus teach all come together in a moment. And he sees him for who he is. He knows that Jesus is Lord and God. And that leads me to my last point of what Jesus expects. And how he regards us when we doubt. He expects control. Remember that Thomas was following Jesus for three years. He had committed that he was Committed to following Jesus already. He had left home. He had left all of his life behind to follow Jesus. But in the moment of Jesus appearing is when all of these things come together for him. When he says, yes, Jesus is God and Lord. And this is actually what Jesus requires of us. He requires us to reckon him as Lord and God. We read the Nicene Creed, which is this declaration of what we believe it's what God requires of us, that, that we too say, yes, Jesus, you are Lord and God. Which leads me to ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe with Thomas? Does your heart call out to him as Lord and God? Do you believe? Do you believe it in the same way that Thomas did? Because after this point, this is the last we hear of Thomas in Scripture, but we have various records from church fathers that recorded that Thomas would eventually be martyred for the faith. Evidently, this encounter with the Lord changed him such that he walked faithfully for the rest of his life. How should we deal with that? How should we, how should we respond? And so we've discussed how Jesus thinks of us when we doubt. He extends compassion. He invites us to consider. He calls us to cast all of our control to him as Lord and God? What steps should we take when we doubt? The first thing I want to highlight is that we should gather with the church when we doubt. Because the church, Redeemer Church, is to be a people of compassion, like Jesus is a God of compassion. We are to be a people of compassion. Recall Lewis the definition of faith that I had read before. It's an excerpt from Mere Christianity. Faith is the heart of holding on to things that reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. He says that your moods will change. Whatever view your reason takes, 
he highlights that there were times when he was an atheist that Christianity looked to be terribly probable. And then there were times when he was a Christian that, well, the whole thing seemed improbable to him. He goes on, he says, consequently, we must train the habit of faith. Neither your Christian belief or any other belief, he says, will automatically remain alive in the mind that must be fed. And it's no surprise that my most intense trials and my most intense doubts all came to a head during the pandemic. Why would that be the case? Well, I was not in church. I was not rehearsing these truths. I was not singing with Christ's people. I wasn't hearing the words, Christ's body was broken for you. Christ's blood was shed for you. I wasn't hearing my brothers and sisters singing. I was struck when we were singing, He Will Hold Me Fast. It's always been a fantastic song for me, that though, my fe- though I fear my faith will fail, He will hold me fast. I wasn't hearing that. I wasn't seeing it. It felt as though all I had were my thoughts. And the more you think about your anxieties, the more you think about your fears, they don't get better, they get worse. We're embodied creatures. We need one another. We need one another's presence. We need to be reminded by one another of the things that we believe. We need to sing together and pray. And seeing God in your lives, Redeemer Church, seeing God work in you, singing with you even when my heart didn't feel it, looking around the room and seeing a group of people who had clung to the Lord even when their heart didn't feel it, compelled me to hang on. It compelled me to stay the course. You were like the ten disciples for me. You were like the, I was like Thomas, sitting amongst you, recalling the times of my confidence while observing yours and it compelling me to hang on. That's how we should respond in our doubts. That's how we should hang on, how we should train our faith, Lewis says. Because if you love the story of Christ, if you're a Christian and it resonates with you, but you fail, you feel doubts, don't feel out of place in church. You belong here. Because not everyone in this place struggles with doubt, but everyone in this place struggles. Maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's anger, maybe it's fear. But we all struggle with these states of emotions that we must grapple with that could lead us away from the Lord. Don't let your doubts have the final say. By by coming to church, we hold on, we cling to these doctrines that we believe to be true. We acknowledge our need for Christ. We are assured of God's faithfulness. Jude verse 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. We're reminded that Jesus, Jesus is, is the kind of God that will not break a bruised reed. He will not quench a smoldering flame of faith. And so if your faith is faintly burning, if, if you find yourself doubting, Jesus will not put out your faith. He's compassionate. He's patient. And so that leads me to the second thing that we should do when we doubt. If Jesus invited Thomas to consider him, to touch his hands, to touch his side, 
then we too, when we doubt, should consider Christ. I mean, I can imagine that the other ten disciples with Thomas were reassuring Thomas that what they saw was real, that they were being truthful. And I can imagine Thomas considering what they said, asking them, what did he look like? How did he get into the room? What did he say to you? Where did he go? Will he be coming back? But even with the weight of evidence in their favor, Thomas could not believe because pure reason alone is not how faith works, right? Reason informs our faith, but it, it doesn't produce it. And no matter what the other disciples said to Thomas, Thomas needed to encounter Christ himself. He needed to see it for himself. So yes, study, ask questions when you're doubting, wrestle with God's word, observe those around you, but ask them about how they met the Lord. Ask, ask those who have seen Jesus, like these ten disciples, and been glad to see their Lord. Ask them about what they've seen. And know that as you wrestle and consider your doubts, you're in good company. We think about John the Baptist. We recall earlier in the book of John, he sends messengers from prison, asking Jesus, hey, are you, are you really the Messiah, or should we look for someone else? Because... So I'm sitting in prison here, and I'm starting to wonder if you might actually not be the Messiah. And how does Jesus respond? He responds by saying that John is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's doubting. He's questioning. He's not rejecting. He's seeking. He's considering. Think about Peter stepping out on the waves to meet Jesus courageously, boldly. But then as he looks around, he he sees the waves and he sees the wind and he begins to doubt. He begins to sink. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, has once said, It seems as if doubt were doomed to be the perpetual companion of faith. As dust attends the chariot wheels, so do doubts naturally becloud the faith. I want to consider King David in Psalm 13. It's a short psalm. I'm going to read it to you. David in Psalm 13 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Remember Lewis's definition of faith. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted despite your changing moods. With that in mind, let's look at this psalm. In spite of your changing moods, where is David at this point? He's saying, God has forgotten me. God is hiding his face from me. God has abandoned me. I am alone. I only have my soul to take counsel in. But what is faith? It's David remembering God has dealt bountifully with me. God has shown steadfast love towards me. God has given me salvation in him. David doesn't stop at mere consideration. Who is God? He doesn't stop at merely asking these questions. He steps forward in faith. He says, I will sing to the Lord. I will trust the Lord. I will rejoice in his salvation. And with Thomas... He says, Jesus, my Lord and my God. 
We see Jesus' compassion. We consider who he is among the church. But we also must call out to him, follow him. Despite our uncertainties, how else would God have us come to him? Should we not come to him desperate for him? I remember when we first moved here, I had lunch with Josh Lambert. And I was kind of laying out to him where I was in my faith journey, how I was having doubts and questions. And I had just come to the point where I was, I was willing to admit to myself and to others that I was struggling. And I remember him saying, how else would God have us approach him? Should we not approach him needy? Should we not approach him knowing we don't have the answers? Even our best thoughts of who God is fall far short of who he is in reality. How else would we come to him? We don't come to him with big heads, big egos, knowing exactly who he is and all of the detail. We come to him with a bit of uncertainty, with a bit of doubt. And that's how he would have us come to him, with humble hearts, saying that I didn't just need you when I initially confessed that you were Lord. I need you today. I need you 10 years later. I need you after I've walked with you for three years like Thomas, seeing you work. I need you to give me faith today. I need you to give me faith tomorrow because I've recognized my tendency to wander. I've seen my tendency to doubt and fear and question. I've seen it. I've experienced it. And contrary to what Bob Newhart would say, I can't stop it. And so I need you. Isn't that how we should come to the Lord? Look at verse 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You might say it would be a lot easier for me to have that kind of confidence. If I could, like Thomas, just see Jesus. If I could just touch his hands, put my hand in his side, if I could see it. Well, then I could have the kind of confidence that others seem to have. It's true. We can't see the risen Lord. In all likelihood, he will not appear here with us. But we have the story. John's given it to us. If you proceed in this chapter, just a few more verses, we see John tell us why he wrote this book. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We have this story. We have this book of John. We have other gospels. We have the story. We have the story of Jesus, our Lord, raised from the dead. We have the story of this creator God that would create the world and create it good, full of goodness, in which men and women can walk alongside God, know him, see him face to face, speak with him. We have the story of this God that created that world, but in our finitude and fallenness, we've, we've kind of messed it up, right? We've sinned, and because of that, death and decay have been introduced into the world, but but this creator God is not content to leave the world in its decay and death. He's not content for us to sit in death and decay. He is going to restore the world. And towards that end, he sets out a plan. He, he sends his son to walk among us. And that son walks among us in a life that was 
perfect. He abided in God perfectly. And because of that, he's killed and he's buried. But because he is God, death couldn't hold him in the grave. Though he sunk down into Sheol, he's raised to life. And when he's raised to life, it's a, it's a foretaste, it's a promise of what's to come. It's a foretaste of the, the ultimate redemption that God will perform when he makes all things new. That's the hope that we have. We have this story. We need to rehearse this story. That's what we do each week, right? When we follow our liturgy, we have a call to worship where we bring our gaze up to God. We have a time of confession where we confess that we are limited, we're fallen, we, we doubt, we fall astray, we, well, we're fallen. Then we have a time of assurance where we hear that, no, you are fallen, you are finite. But we can approach God just as we are because of Christ's blood. We need to rehearse it. Because as Lewis says, we, we have to keep it before us. We have to train the habit of faith. We have to remind one another that we can find life in Jesus' name. And as a church, we don't cast the doubters out. We, like the ten disciples, are to welcome the doubters in or invite the Thomases in. few final words. For those of you who are not presently doubting, have mercy on those who doubt, Jude says. Demonstrate your faith. Live your life in a way that those of us who doubt may see your light, see your good works. May it validate this message. May it be the hands and feet of Jesus that we need to see. We can't see the risen Lord's hands and feet, but we can see the church. We can see God working in the world through his church. We can consider Christ and study, can meditate. We can sit in the story. For those of you who believe but doubt, take my word of advice and be honest with yourself. If you doubt, you need not despair. We've seen how This Lord that we believe in, he's compassionate. He wants us to see him. He wants us to consider him. He wants us to cast our cares on him. Be honest with yourself. And find those around you that you can be honest with, with your questions, with your concerns. And know that the essence of faith isn't to know things, know all things, It's to, despite our misunderstandings and our limitations and our doubts, it's to nonetheless call out to the Lord and hope in Him. Because remember that moods change. You may wake up tomorrow and be excited about the Lord, or you may wake up tomorrow and feel like God doesn't hear you. But ultimately... The walk of faith is saying, I'm going to trust the Lord regardless of how I feel. I'm going to call out to him. I'm going to consider him. You know, my walk now with God, it's more intimate, more fulfilling, more rich than it's ever been before. And it's because I realize now, I don't need to fear 
my doubts. I don't need to fear another season of doubt. Because those doubts push me. They push me towards the Lord. They push me to consider him. They push me to hold closely to the truths that I believe in. They push me to call out to him. They push me to recognize my deep need for Jesus to change my heart, to produce faith in me. They, they push me to him. And so I don't fear doubt. I don't fear questions. Because I know I need him. And I know that the kind of faith that he requires, and the kind of faith that he admires in us, is the kind of faith that says, I trust you regardless. Because I recognize that I'm saved by grace through my faith. We often think that our faith saves us, right? We think that the degree to which we're saved is is how strong our faith is in any given moment. But that's not what the text says, is it? It says that we're saved by grace. We're saved by God's mercy. We're saved by the mercy of this compassionate Lord that knows our frailty, that knows our doubts. So I don't fear doubt. I call out to God. I recognize that my faith is imperfect. It's fallen. It's finite. But that Jesus says, peace be with you. Touch my hands. Touch my side and believe. And that kind of belief is sufficient for me. And so if you're here and you've You've never taken that step. You've been around church, but you've never actually professed Christ. Let this be a word to you. Don't wait until you have every question answered before you call out to him. Because that's not the kind of faith that any of us have that are here that do profess Christ. We don't have all the answers. We don't have, we have lingering doubts. We have uncertainties. So if you've never called out to Christ, don't wait until you have every question answered. Call out to him as the merciful, compassionate Lord that reaches out to you and says, peace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we recognize, we recognize our weakness. We recognize that we doubt that we question you, that we, that our faith falls short of what it should be. But God, that recognition compels us to draw even closer to you. Because you're the kind of God that welcomes us in even when we doubt, even when we question. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your blood shed for us that that our standing before you and how you think of us does not depend on the strength of our faith, but it depends on the strength of your son's blood. And so I ask that you would help us, that, that you would help restore confidence to us now in the moment, and that you would enable us to not fear doubt or to despair when we doubt, but that you would enable us to call out to you. It's in Christ's name we pray.